Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The word of God speaks to us. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word to us. All right. Hey, good morning. Good to be with you guys. Again, my name is Ben, and uh, man, I really love this church. I've, I used to uh, lead worship in Frontline. I would come down to uh, Frontline South a lot and lead worship here, so it's good to see some familiar faces and, and um, some of those that I haven't met quite yet. I'm from Shawnee. Uh, I'm from Louisiana, but I, I currently live in Shawnee, America, which is, if you're not familiar with Shawnee, America, it's 41 miles east um, and I would love to see, just show of hands, how many people have either lived there or have friends and family that live there now? Raise your hand. See there? We could take over. <laughs> There's enough of us that we could take over and just make Shawnee, it actually at one point was uh, the capital of Oklahoma for like one minute. So anyway, I'm just saying we could do that again, you know. We're small, but we're mighty. Um, hey, so there's, there's just great stuff happening in Shawnee. I want to give you a real quick update. Um, today, Andrew's there, and Andrew has spent the whole week out in Frontline Shawnee. I spent the week here uh, with, with your team, who I just absolutely love. Um, I've, been, I've been doing ministry for a long time, been around different churches. I used to go to different churches and lead worship, and, and that was kind of my life for a long So I've seen a lot of churches and I'm just telling you, it's so easy to take for granted just what we have here. And as a guy who's like, I'm kind of an insider, but I'm an outsider coming in, you are blessed. You have a phenomenal team here. It's been so fun to get to know those guys. So, man, on behalf of, yeah, that's right, we, we should applaud. And Andrew's been out in Shawnee, and uh, he's there today. And today's a really kind of hyped day in Shawnee. We're baptizing people today. We are baptizing an entire family, a family of three today. And actually, the late, the late, it's pretty awesome. The lady that's getting baptized is pregnant, and she's like pregnant, pregnant. You know what I mean? It's like she's due sometime in December. She's being baptized today. That is straight out of the Bible. And I'm so hyped. And I told Andrew, dude, I'm so stoked. You're gonna, that's going to be like 
That is, that will be the great awakening for that area. It will finally happen. It will come the day that you're going to be there. And I love it. And I, they texted me this morning. I got a phone call from my kids director. She said, hey, the power is out in the whole town and therefore the church. And uh, so, you know, we need this, 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 and this. I literally got that at 8.15 this morning. So they've been doing services without power. Anyway, um, but, you know, hey, it's like my buddy Charlie said before. He goes, well, you need real power, not just fake power. You need the power of God. I said, preach, brother. But we, it is true. We do actually, as cheesy as that sounds, now it sounds even more cheesy coming out of my mouth to you guys. Um, it is actually a fact. I mean, it's like, we get so hung up, we're gonna talk about it today, we get so hung up on the stuff that we think that we need. And what you need and what I need more than anything else in the world is the presence and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And we could actually do church really well today and totally miss God, the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says if we build a house without God, we build the house in vain. We don't wanna labor in vain. So you're gonna, I'm gonna ask you to pray and I'm gonna ask you to really pray the Bible says the prayer of righteous people, so those that have trusted Jesus, it does a lot of work. It avails much. So pray, ask for God the Holy Spirit to come, and I'll pray for you. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we ask for, uh, we, we do ask for your power today. We don't want to just like preach a sermon or listen or just go to church because it's what we do in the Bible Belt. Lord, we need your power and your presence. We ask that you would move on us, that you would change us, that you would heal people today. Bind up the brokenhearted. We pray that captives would be set free. We pray against oppression in this room, oppression. We pray against, um, we pray against um, just anxieties of life. Lord, we ask that you would fill it, Prince of Peace, that you would come, bring the peace of Christ to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I know you don't know me, but for those that do know me, they know how much I love holidays I love Thanksgiving, so let me just start there. And I have strong judgments towards people that don't love Thanksgiving. I, turkey's maybe my favorite thing on earth to eat. I know that's strange. I probably sound too country to even like turkey, but I love me some turkey. I did four Thanksgivings this year in one week, and that's not even the most I've ever done in a week. And I wasn't planning on doing two of those. I just impromptu, I was like, man, let me, let's just run it back. Let's run it back. Pecan pie, turkey, you know, the whole thing. I somehow made it to the end of the week, and I realized that I had not cooked a turkey, so I called all my friends. I was driving to somebody's house, and I was like, you know what? It is stupid that I haven't called the people that love Thanksgiving food the most to come and have a Thanksgiving meal. So that's what I did. I said, guys, why in the world? How dumb are we? We love Thanksgiving. We didn't even have a Thanksgiving meal together. So we literally, at the end of the week, on Sunday night, last Sunday, we said, let's do a Thanksgiving meal. And we did. I love I love holidays. I love hanging out with my friends. I love food. I love Christmas. One of my favorite things is the first week of Advent when you come back from Thanksgiving and you look around and there's trees up. You know, I always tell people in Shawnee, I'm like, you cannot go too overboard for me. Put the train running around the sanctuary. You know, whatever it is, man. Just let's just be Christmas in this place, please. I love it. I love the pageantry. I love everything about Christmas. I love gifts. You, feel free, feel free. I cannot, I don't have enough money to buy everybody else one, but I would love, you don't even have to know me, give me a gift, and I'm down. I love gifts, I love Christmas, I just love the whole thing, I love the pageantry, but here's the problem that I have, and maybe the problem that you run into as well, it's like, 
I do with the holidays what I do with a lot of things in my life. I'm an idealist, which we all are. And I make these idealistic assumptions about what Christmas should be. And I, to the, for the parents in the room, I'm about to, this is about to get very real very fast for you. The idea that you have about Christmas for your kids, it's like, this is going to be that year. I'm not going to tell them when I'm going to get them, but I'm going to, by the grace of God and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, going to get them everything they want, the thing that they want the most. And they're going to be so shocked. And it's going to be epic. And we're going to put it on camera, and I'm going to post it, and I'm going to win Mom of the Year finally. You ever have those thoughts about Christmas where it's like deep down, you're just like, this is going to be the best thing. My child is going to love this one thing. And they open it up, and they're like, what is this? And then you're like, that's something that your mom and your dad worked a job and paid for, which you don't currently do. (laughs) There's an idealism that I've attached to a lot of things in my life. And all jokes aside, it's like idealism runs out. Because when you're met with reality, how many of you in the room, and let's just get very real for a minute, how many of you in the room got married and you go, I thought I knew this person. I don't actually know them. And about a year, two years, three years down the road, you realize like some people actually change. I didn't know them then and I don't, don't know them now. And that's hard, man, our idealism. When we grow up, we've got all these kind of Disney level ideas about what we could do. For me, it's like play baseball. I was a baseball player. I came to college to play baseball. I'm going to be the youngest person ever drafted number one overall. In the same year, I'm going to go to my favorite baseball team drafted by them who nobody told me were perennial losers. And then I'm going to lead them to the World Series. We're going to win the World Series 10, 12 years in a row. Then I'm going to retire early. I'm going to marry a perfect sinless person. I'm going to have perfect sinless kids. I don't know, I'm gonna live on a ranch somewhere. And I told the first service, and the next thing is like, probably the worst part of my idealism is I'm gonna eat fried chicken and gumbo every meal, every day of my life, and I'm the only person ever that it's not gonna affect their health. (laughs) Anybody, you just, I know I'm being silly, but it is true that, man, the things that we can dream up, crazy things, and they don't get met, and then when our expectations and our idealism is not met, then what happens? It just, you just realize like, oh, not only does that not happen, but sometimes the exact opposite of that happens. Pain enters in. The people that we love the most break our hearts. Even the people that we love the most, even people that are like faithful, they still, our hearts are broken. What do you do with that? Advent is the season for God's people to recognize the reality of darkness in our life, but then also to look towards the reality of light and hope in Christ. That tension in between from where we are to us wanting, longing for Jesus to come back and restore all things, that's actually not a fairy tale. That tension, that's where we live. That's what Advent is. Advent is that going... Christ is my hope, and he's also my future hope. So I can put my hope in him. We're going to be studying through Isaiah this next four weeks. And Isaiah, like us, Isaiah lets us know that the things that we feel in our darkness and anxiety are not new to us. This is the story of God's people. 
Isaiah was writing about the Messiah 700 years before Jesus was born. And in his day, God's people were faced with a lot of anxiety. Their idealism was broken. God sends a prophet to them in Isaiah as a mouthpiece to get them to turn back to God and realize, no, 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 what you need more than anything is not yourself. You don't need your ideals. You don't need your Disney life. You need God, real God, him, actually. You need a savior. The people of God were surrounded by their enemies. Now, I want you to imagine this with me. They were surrounded by their enemies in that day. Uh, They had had terrible kings. The king that they currently had negotiated with another king of Assyria. And so that he could save face, he gave that king some of their land rights. And then in turn, the king of Assyria enslaved some of the people of God. They were surrounded by darkness. There was imminent danger. Imagine living in a land where your enemies were imminently going to take over and you're going to be enslaved. That's anxiety. There's a few things I want us to see today that I think will be helpful for us in reality as it relates to what happened in Isaiah's day. The first thing is this. Advent is simply facing the darkness. It's facing it, not avoiding it. We have now Isaiah the prophet comes to God's people to reorient their hearts back to him. And here's what happened. In verse 1, we started with verse 2 today, but I want to read verse 1. I think it's helpful for us. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. And pay attention to these these, uh, regions. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The story of God's people is this. It's just like this. They are delivered by God. God comes to them. He delivers them. He feeds them. He clothes them. He, and for us today, clothes us in righteousness. He feeds us in his word. God has literally provided food for us, provided food for them. And they see God. And he proves it. And then immediately, and I mean that, immediately, they go, why has God not fed us? Why has he not provided? And then they'll move down the way. And then God will provide again. And he'll call them to repentance. And they'll repent the whole nation will repent. And then he provides for them, and then they move down the way a little bit, and then they go, why has God not provided for us? Um, maybe you're familiar with the story of Exodus. So way, way, way long time ago, one of the anchor stories of God's people is the story of Exodus. The people of God were enslaved for 400-ish years, and Pharaoh had enslaved them, and their whole identity was that, no, we're the people of God. We're not the slaves of Pharaoh. We want to be delivered from Pharaoh. So God sends a deliverer. He sends Moses. And Moses, uh, through convincing Pharaoh, which he never actually did, God has to convince him, the people of God are released. Moses leads them out of slavery. It took no time. It wasn't 10 minutes out of slavery. They get into the wilderness. God has delivered them from the taskmaster, from Pharaoh. He's provided them food. He's done all of these plagues to prove himself. They get out in the wilderness, and just like that, they go, where's our food coming from? We're hungry. And because God didn't provide a microwave meal for them immediately, here's what they said. It would be better for us to go back into slavery. At least we would know where our food comes from. Does that sound crazy? That sounds 
crazy. It's the story of God's people, though, and it's also the story of you and the story of me. Come on, man. That's us. What does God have to do? How many times have you proven that? We are wayward. We are bent towards darkness. Because of what happened in the fall, our natural bent now is towards anxiety and despair and not trusting God. Advent is first facing the darkness. In Isaiah's day, the same kind of darkness. Isaiah uh, was facing this king of Assyria. Assyria was sent as judgment. Isaiah, uh, Israel's under stress. Uh, they neglected the needy among them. The current king, Ahaz, again, gives up the land out of fear, and Jesus, uh, Jewish people are taken as slaves, and from their fear, God's people stop seeking him, and they start seeking other things. It's really dark things, things like witches, seances, um, necromancers. That is not just the term from the Lord of the Rings, even though it sounds like it. In chapter 8, right before this, here's what's happened. And when, you, and when they say to you, this is Isaiah speaking to God's people on behalf of God. Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not people inquire of their God? Should they not inquire? Should they, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Should they not inquire of their God? That makes sense. You say that you belong to God and that you're God's people and that you trust God, but you're going to witches. And again, this might seem a little far-fetched for us, but it's not just a Lord of the Rings term. It actually applies to your life because the Bible says that rebellion is as witchcraft. And so when we seek things, when we go to other things to be omnipotent, omniscient, that means like present, all-knowing, all-powerful, things like your family, Things like your paycheck, things like your career. When we look to those things to do what only God can do, not only are we not going to be satisfied, but we're actually going to be gripped by idolatry. And that's what's happening to the people here. They go, I don't trust God to be who God only can be. I'm going to go to these other things. We're addicted to the darkness, addicted to cynicism and rebellion. And so were they. So the question is this then, what is the hope for them? If we keep chasing our tail, and what's the hope for you? The first thing before we get to any kind of hope is that we've got to face the darkness. We've got to face the reality of who we are. But then we have to realize this. Advent is us facing the darkness, but it's also God facing the darkness, which is the best news of all time. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, Zebulun and Nephtali. Um, which, by the way, man, if you're looking for names for upcoming children, you know, you can call them Zeb, Zebulun, that'd be good. Zebulun and Nephtali. Look, this is the very place that was on the, the border of Israel where the Assyrian people were, had started to take over the land of Israel. What is happening here is Isaiah is prophesying. He's saying God will come into and retake the land at the very place that the enemy had taken it. Meaning this, that thing that you thought you had lost for sure, God will restore it again right on their doorstep. 
Verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Notice the past tense. Isaiah is prophesying with so much confidence that he's saying, this did happen. You might as well count it like it did happen because I promise you, those that have walked in darkness, a light not will shine, has shone. And notice how it's happening. On them, the light has shone. This is not, just to be, just so that we're not confused by who decided to put the light in the darkness. We didn't just wake up one day and go, you know what? This is dark. I recognize it's dark. Let me go get some light. What happened was is we were in darkness, in the darkness that we had created and continued to live in, and on us, a light has shone. You understand what I'm saying? They didn't just come to their senses. They didn't just all of a sudden think they need a change of scenery. We're not bent towards that. We're bent towards rebellion and darkness. God is the one that does the light shining. Verse three, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He's saying there's one that's gonna come that brings joy to the nation, not just to you personally. He both brings joy to you and the whole nation. That's power. From anxiety to joy. Imagine being a people who are trapped in anxiety and for the word of the living God to come to you and say, there's gonna be joy for the nation, not just anxiety. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden, that's an important word, yoke, and the staff for his shoulder, that's an important word, and the rod of his oppressor, the yoke, the staff, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, talking to God, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is a cool story, this is a cool part of this. Midian was a, a place, a location, but it was also a people group. Uh, that was a, the armies of Midian. And there was this man who, who God used called Gideon. Maybe you know the story. Maybe, a lot of you probably don't. But uh, what you have is Midian was like tens of thousands of, of people, army. And then Gideon had 300 people. It sounds like a movie. It's a real story. Uh, God defeats the armies of Midian through Gideon and his small band. And what he's saying here is that God is gonna do for you what he did for Gideon, meaning this, he's gonna defeat, when you feel like you're surrounded by your enemies, God is gonna defeat all of them pretty well single-handedly, at least in a way that makes it only to where he could do it. He says, the yoke of his burden, you know what yoke Yoke applies, uh, means suffering applied to him. The yoke, to take it upon you. Staff, the staff of his shoulder. Uh, staff is applied comfort for us. Remember Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So now it's yoke means he will take on suffering for us and out of his suffering being taken on for us, we will have comfort. And the last thing is the rod of his oppressor. Rod is applied suffering to enemies. So it's this. The prophesied one will take on suffering meant for us and at the same time apply suffering to our enemies and give us eternal comfort in the process. Whew. 
I love this next part. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood. So now I guess the enemy's clothes. That's what we're talking about. Listen to what will happen to them. They will be burned as fuel for the fire in the world. Well, it means simply this. Whoever the prophesied one is, his defeat will be so dominant, so swift, so defined, so complete, that even the clothes and the tools and the weapons of the enemy will be used for his people's good. Romans 8.28 says it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who called according to his purpose. There's also the story of Joseph in Genesis 50. Maybe you know about Joseph, but Joseph's brothers, he's a man of God, Joseph's brothers tried to kill him, save him, uh, to, uh, to sell him into slavery. Well, God used Joseph's life later on. His brothers come before him, and instead of Joseph having retaliation, he tells them, because he's so confident in God, here's what Joseph tells his brothers who sold him into slavery. He tells them this, what you intended for evil, God intended for my good. Well, that's confidence, isn't it? So what he's going to do is going to be unprecedented. There will never be anything else like it. He will do, he won't just defeat the enemy. He will actually not waste a single battle that we've lost. He will not waste a single thing from them. He will use all of that for our good. That's power. Man. So then I'm, you know, we're thinking, they're thinking, what kind of, this person has to be at least 15 feet tall. <laughs> they need to be the strongest person that's ever lived. They need to have like all the Marvel superhero attributes. They need to have them all just within himself in order to do that. Tall, strong, probably carrying several swords. If he's going to do it by himself, I mean, my goodness. Here's who he really is. Advent is about a baby. It's about a baby. Isaiah does all of that description, and now he describes exactly how he's going to do it. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. A child. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Our ideas of Christmas are very sweet, precious. Sometimes we even sing songs. I love them. We don't need to stop singing them, but songs about a way in a manger, you know, sweet baby Jesus, the stars. It's quiet. It's peaceful. It's perfect. There's animals all around, but for the first time in the history of the world, they're not making any noise. For the first time in the history of the world, the baby's not crying. And I'm here to tell you it wasn't like that. It was messy. He, of course, cried. And the deal is this, is that he was coming as the prince of peace, but he was also coming as mighty God. Jesus entering into that manger, which was basically like a gas station, Jesus entering into that place from Nazareth was coming to declare war. This is a war scene. He's a child who carries a sword. 
He's God, but now has to rely upon his mother to nurse him. Do you ever think about the fact that God was born through a birthing process that he designed? Man, that's power and humility. Do you ever think about, because I do, do you ever think about all the ways that God could have been? All the things that he could have been like? You ever take time to just think about like how terrible it would be if God was moody? <laughs> I see some spouses in the room, you know, nudging their, their spouse next to them like, yeah, that's what I think about with you. Do you ever think about how terrible it would be if God was evil? What if he was bored? What if God had a little bit, not even, doesn't even have to have a lot, but what if he had a little bit of a temper? You just never knew. It's like, once out of every thousand years, he just kind of loses it. Can you imagine the anxiety that we would live under? What would his name be called then? Prince of most of the time peace. But when it's not peace, it's rough. Everlasting father? What would he be called? Not everlasting. He's most of the time he's there, but not sometimes not. Aren't you glad? I'm telling you, you should be glad. You don't know me. We should all be glad that God is not remotely like me, for sure. But aren't you glad that he's not like you? <laughs> he's different. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Wonderful counselor translated loosely simply means this. He is a wonder of a counselor. I'm glad that God listens and gives wisdom. I'm glad that he is not opposed to our problems or doubt, and I am glad that God wants us in the room with him. I'm glad that he gives wisdom, and not just that, he gives it in a wonderful way. He's more patient than anybody else, and he's not just the best therapist or whatever. He is that. He's not just that, but he's also mighty in his counsel. He gives the kind of wisdom that, wisdom that makes demons shudder. That kind of wisdom. The kind of wisdom that helps us push back darkness and fight sin in our life. He is a wonderful counselor. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's also a mighty God, which means that he's full of power. And it's not like he has just enough power. It's not like he has more power than us. He is the very source of power. Mighty God. Power over darkness and sin. He has power to ruin death power to give beauty for ashes, power to silence the enemy and subdue nature by a word of his power. He's everlasting father, which means this. I love this. Uh, we, we live in a culture where dads are just hard to come by. And a lot of you in the room um, have experienced some of the things that I've experienced, which is not having much of a dad around. How is God different? It goes on to just make sure that we kill any idea that he will ever leave. He is a father, but he's everlasting. He lasts forever. Meaning this, it's not up to you to keep him around. He himself in his character is everlasting. And he's the prince of peace. The prince of peace. How sweet is that? 
Meaning, it's not just that he has peace to give, it's that he himself is our peace. In Ephesians 2, it says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He himself is our peace. God doesn't just have peace to give. It's not just like a good idea for you to have Jesus if you want peace in your life. It's that there is no peace outside of him. If you want peace, you need to go to the source. Are you struggling today with anxiety or just just riddled? I'm not saying no in Jesus. Look, I have anxiety at times. I mean, there are days in my life which proves the darkness where I'm like, I'll have four great days and then I'll just wake up out of the clear blue and just be like, why do I hate everything today? Why do I feel like that everything is against me? That anxiety when it tells you that the only possible outcome is the worst possible outcome. I know what it's like. I feel it. He's the prince of peace. He's not just a source of peace. He is the source of peace. It doesn't mean that peace just goes away, but what it means, I mean, that anxiety just goes away, but what it means is this, is even when you don't feel peace, it's, it lets you know that you're still anchored to the prince of peace. That itself will shut the mouth of anxiety to go like, wait a minute. I know how to get out of this. I, I don't feel it. I feel crazy. It's, it's all weird right now. I don't know how to explain it, but I just feel a mess, like a hot mess, like the world's caving in on me, whatever it is. I feel like I'm not doing a good job at anything. But I, but I, but I know this. I 100% know this. I am anchored to the prince of all peace. And he's Jesus. I mean, this is out of the Gospel of Matthew. 700 years after Isaiah wrote this, look what happens with Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here it is. The land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness. This is in Matthew. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from this time, Jesus began to preach saying this. It's what he's saying to us today. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning it's happening. The thing that you have longed for, the thing that you have wanted is happening. It's here. It can be found. You can have it in Jesus. 700 years before his birth, Isaiah is giving the people of God the hope of the nations in Christ. Verse 7 This is big. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and how long? Forevermore. And then probably my favorite line in this whole deal is this. How is it? How will God do it? Will he do it reluctantly? Will he be angry? Will he be like what you and me would be? I'm like, man, I'm asleep. I was taking a nap, and here they are wilding out again. Let me just have to go down there, I guess, and deal with all this stuff. Is that how God does it? No. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
You know what zeal means? One of the things that it means, a symbol of zeal that lets you know you got zeal, it literally translates to red-faced. Red-faced. Anybody ever been angry enough to be red-faced? Anybody ever been passionate enough to be red-faced? The red-faced love of God in Christ for you will do this. His red-faced disgust of death and sin and darkness will do this. He's not reluctant. He's not angry about it. He's not frustrated. He's not upset. He is the type of God that pursues us with zeal. And that's why you're here today. It's not by some random coincidence. It's that God in his zeal has literally orchestrated your life from point A to B to C to D, and he's done it today, but he's also done it this week. Somebody had to put gas in your car. Maybe it was you. I don't know. Somebody had to clear your schedule to be here today. Maybe it was you. I don't know. Maybe your friend just dragged you to church today. <laughs> For whatever reason it is, man, God has used those things to get you here today, right now in this moment, not by coincidence, because of his red-faced, zealous love for you. And I guarantee you nothing would have kept you from here. He's sovereign. Zeal, the Lord of hosts, will do this. Talk about a hero. Advent is this simply. It's embracing reality, but it's embracing the reality of darkness. The dark news before the light news. The bad news before the good news. It's not avoiding it. And it's also embracing the reality of light in Christ. That's my question for you guys is this is, have you forgotten the zeal of the Lord of hosts? Have you forgotten it? I think when we forget it, we start to like idolize other things. We start to make other things like family and money and all that stuff. We start to look for zeal in that. And that stuff's never going to give you zeal. It's not. Anybody around here would just be like, you know what? My job really red-faced pursues me. My job does. No, it doesn't. It leaves you empty. You try to worship other things. It doesn't give you what God can give you. So have you forgotten the zeal of the Lord of hosts today? Have you forgotten true hope? And you probably have because I have too. And the invitation today is to remember the Lord of hosts. Remember hope. Once again, say, yeah, I forgot. I'm about to come to this table and put my hope in Jesus again. I'm gonna take every step I take towards communion today. It's gonna be a step of repentance to remember Christ. And then it's not magical. I mean, the Lord, there's plenty of uh, instances throughout history of the Lord delivering people on the spot through the table, that's for sure. I don't know if he's gonna do that for you today. Uh, it's not magical, but it is powerful. And it's the walk of the Christian, the journey of the Christian to remember Christ even when we've forgotten. Where's your hope today? Um, there's Christians in the room that have forgotten God maybe for a, lo a long time. There's people in the room that uh, have been to church, like no church, you know all the songs and how to say and what whatever. Grandpa was a pastor and his grandpa was a pastor and whatever it is and I know about church, Brother Ben. <laughs> I know all about it, but maybe you're just realizing today that you don't actually know Jesus. You know church, but you don't know 
Christ, which is, happens a lot in the Bible Belt. And I would invite you to like contemplate Christ today. Do you know him? Have you placed your hope in him, not in systems? That's important. And then there's several of you that just showed up here and you don't know Christ at all, but you're curious. And I, I, I don't know, I'm not going to plead with you. I'm not going to try to press you any, anything other than just to tell you that everything I've said about Christ today is true. Everything. It is a fact. So however God got you here, I just would invite you to just like be at least this much open to the fact that maybe it was him that did bring you here and that he actually does care about you today. Okay. As we get ready to come to the table, I want to invite you to stand. Uh, If you're not a Christian in the room, um, what makes sense for you to take communion? It's, it's it's, It's what the family of God, those that have confessed Jesus do. Um, it's bread, it's wine, that's all it is without Christ, without faith in Christ, it's just that. I don't think it's particularly good bread. I told the first service it's not even like those breadsticks from Olive Garden, you know. What's that? It's just bread. (laughs) I don't know. Um, But with Christ, if you belong to Christ, it's a meal, it's a covenant meal. It's... uh, it's a remembrance. It's like more than just bread and wine. It's me going like, yeah, I belong to Christ. Let me take and eat. Let me take and drink. You know what I'm saying? So if you're a Christian in the room, if you've been baptized in the faith, come and take communion. If you're not a Christian, uh, come talk to me. Don't take communion. Come talk to me about Jesus. I would love that. All right, here's the scene. Uh, Jesus, the one prophesied about in Isaiah, on the night that he was betrayed, and, and I mean that, he was brutally betrayed and then murdered for us. That night, he had, he's sitting around with his best friends. His friends had, this is kind of crazy, but they had like slept on the ground with him. They had fa- tried to find food. They'd been persecuted. They almost died with him. I mean, that's closeness. You know what I mean? They loved him. On that night, Jesus looks around and every single one of his best friends is going to betray him. Bitterly. Deny that they know him. And here's what Christ does, and nobody here would do it this way, I promise you. To his deniers and betrayers, he holds up bread, and he tells them something insane. He says, this is my body broken for you, betrayers. And then he holds up a cup of wine, he does something even more insane. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. And he says, the cup of the new covenant. You know what that means? Not only is he feeding his betrayers, with himself, he's also giving them a covenant that they don't even have to keep. A new covenant means that God keeps it. So that's the invitation for you today. This is a room full of betrayers and deniers. So come to the table. Come receive the body of the one who has zealously pursued you because of how great he is. When you're ready, come and take communion.